Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. He is extraordinary. Many would say that Edward Hyman invented market economics with honor and grace to Alan Greenspan as well. Evercore ISI chairman, and we're thrilled that Ed Hyman could brief us here into August, into Q3 and into Q4 of this tumultuous 2021. Ed, I want to cut to the chase. You've seen this out of your engineering at MIT, an era of pricing power, it can't happen. Another era of pricing power, it can't happen. And this time around, you say there is pricing power and corporations can adapt to the new inflation. How do they do it? So when we uh, survey retailers in particular, uh, they tell us that uh, pricing power is the most ever. Uh, we also uh, survey manufacturing companies, they say the same thing. And so costs are up, but independent of that, labor costs are up also, but in, independent of that, uh, companies uh, are able to pass it along. Because uh, I guess because the economy is good, people are getting pay increases. Uh, but it also is important because it allows earnings to go up. And earnings are, in the second quarter, they were explosive. Uh, but I guess more important, uh, they'll be uh, strong in the third quarter as well. What do you see for Q4? I mean, the idea here of inventing market economics into market analysis, many would say you did that. Chart, paragraph, chart, paragraph. What do the charts say now about the fourth quarter? So in terms of uh, economic growth, uh, we have it slowing down uh, to about 6% uh, from you know, roughly 10% uh, in the second and third quarters. Uh, and, but because uh, I'm really focused on the stock market, uh, I think earnings will increase again. Uh, we have earnings in the second quarter at 220, uh, which is probably $20 ahead of the consensus. And then maybe 230 and maybe 240 in the uh, third and fourth quarters. And that puts the PE, you know, something like uh, 19 times uh, with bond yields, you know, below 2%. And the Fed balance sheet increasing $120 billion, uh, every single month. Ed, you mentioned higher prices. You alluded to what you thought, but I just want to get you to emphasize it just a little bit more. Higher prices laying the foundation for higher prices, that virtuous cycle that seems to be taking place at the moment. Is that a virtuous cycle you think overwhelms the Federal Reserve? Or is this the right kind of price growth? Um, well, I think inflation is going to be more than expected. Uh, you know, we do a lot of work on rents and they are surging. And that's 40% uh, of the core CPI, 20% uh, of the core PCE. And so rents are going to be running around 6%. You can do the math on what that does. Uh, and then wages will be going up. And uh, like we discussed a second ago, pricing power is going up. So uh, inflation is likely to, to run ahead of uh, expectations. But I think uh, it'll settle out at around 3% in say 23, uh, 2023, 2024. So it won't get out of hand, but it's gonna it's be higher than it, than it has been in the past. Ed, how does that shape your views on what the Federal Reserve is going to do in that kind of environment? 
3%, clearly below where we are right now, but that higher rate of change, if you think that's going to stick, 23, 24, I just wonder how that shapes right. your views of monetary policy. Well, I, you know, I, I hate to state the obvious with a, with a thrill of discovery, but you know, they're going to they're gonna move. Uh, and they've already indicated they're going to move. Uh, so they'll start to taper. It'll take about a year uh, to you know, get down to zero, and then they'll start to raise rates. Uh, and neither, neither of those are tightening. They're just you know, less stimulative. And then if they keep raising rates, which will be down the road quite a bit, they'll finally get to a tightening position. Uh, so I feel, uh, I think the Fed right now is probably behind what I see, uh, but you know they're 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 moving, and so they'll keep moving. And uh, whether they start to taper in December or January, uh, which is sort of the discussion at the moment, uh, doesn't make a big difference. I think in the big picture. Do you see a taper tantrum, or has that already happened? Uh, you know, they, uh, Bernanke gave us a good way to avoid it. You know, he, uh, he showed you what can happen. And so they've been very careful in uh, trying to avoid a taper tantrum. And I think they've been largely successful. Uh, now everybody is on the same page uh, that they'll, uh, you know, discuss it uh, in upcoming meetings. It's the lead story in the journal today. And, uh, and then probably by January, they'll start to, uh, cut the balance sheet expansion by ten billion. So it'll be one twenty, one ten, one hundred ninety eight, seventy sixty. Then you get to zero uh, in twelve months. Yeah. Ed, the hallmark of what you invented is your granularity, folks. We used to wait with bated breath. Ed would sleep in, and we'd be lucky if we got the report by ten a.m. And there'd be this big, ugly black marker on it where Hyman would say, "Shut up and listen to this." This is C.J. Lawrence, and then on to ISI, and now Evercore ISI. How does your granularity, your study of American business, respond to business people that say they can't find workers? Do you just say to yourself, Ed, raise a damn wage? I mean. How do you respond to that? Well, pretty, pretty, pretty much. We'll see if there's uh, an increase in wages, increase in workers uh, when the uh, enhanced uh, benefits roll off in September. Uh, but you know, I I agree with the way you implied, uh, and that's what I see is happening. Companies will simply uh, raise pay, and it, from what I can tell, uh, you know, at the fifteen twenty dollar uh, an hour wage. Mm -hmm. Uh, if you do two or three dollars, uh, you could get a significant change in the number of people applying. You know, that seems to be uh, enough. And so I think that you're going to see you know, a pretty big pop in wages. Uh, could be transitory as well, uh, but you'll see a pretty big pop in wages. Right. And, but it's also moving up the chain. You saw where uh, BlackRock is giving an 8% across the board uh, pay increase. And, uh, you know, for bankers are up to 100000 an hour, I guess. Uh, and, and so, you know, it's, it's not just $15 an hour workers. And Hyman, should Jerome Powell continue in his services to the Federal Reserve System in America? We'll find out. I'm not, it's, not, it's, not a, it's not a done deal, in my opinion. Uh, but uh, I'm sure, you know, Biden is considering the options and uh, considering whether or not he needs to work on, uh, you know, have a, having a broader 
uh, footprint. I mean, John, uh, I can so see we'll it now, see. John. I don't, I, don't, I don't think it makes a difference. If he's replaced, uh, the person that replaces him will probably be, you know, a little bit more dovish than he is. And I think he's he's done, if anything, he's too dovish, but uh, I mean, it, I, won't I, be a, it won't be a tightening. I think, John, what we got to come to the conclusion is Chairman Hyman would look awfully good at the Eccles. Oh, there we go. I don't think Ed <laughs> wants to respond to that. John, don't. don't. <laughs> Don't listen to that guy. I'm not going to go there, Ed. Don't worry. Beyond this, though, for you, for the chairman, for the FOMC, looking down to Washington at the moment, I think is so difficult for a lot of people. Just getting the direction right earlier this year was somewhat straightforward. You knew that Washington, D.C. would be a tailwind for your GDP forecasts. Everyone was revising GDP revisions higher. It was a positive growth shock. Ed, can you look down to D.C. now and characterize things for us just on the fiscal side? the range of outcomes and how wide they are for you as you try and generate a decent outlook with some confidence? So first, uh, let's not leave the monetary uh, part behind because this is still, I think, a huge tailwind. And monetary policy leads by one and two years. But on the fiscal side, uh, you know, my uh, team in, in Washington uh, comes to about $2 trillion. Uh, when the dust all settles, uh, and it's not the three or half trillion that they're looking for, but it's not one trillion either. And so I think you'll get, uh, you know, more stimulus. Now that's over, say, a decade, uh, so it's a couple hundred billion uh, a year. I say a couple hundred billion. tailwind. The world's changed. There was a time when a hundred, couple of hundred billion was something big, and, <laughs> and now anything under a trillion, you're a fiscal hawk. Chairman Ed Hyman, it's good to catch up. Of Evercore, not of the pleasure. Federal Reserve. Ed, it's good to see you. Thank you so much for joining us. Right now, our great honor to get some clarity on where we are in this pandemic. We do this with Peter Hotez, who's become nationally known, many media appearances, speaking in English, and also as a pinata for the anti-vaccination crew. We're thrilled that Dr. Hotez could join us. Yes, from Baylor College of Medicine, but far more, you need to know he is co-director of Parasites Without Borders with an incredible focus on the children of this world. He's Texas Children's Hospital endowed chair in tropical pediatrics. Peter Hotez, you deal 24-7 in children. What is the risk to our children of the Delta variant? Tom, I think what's happening is uh, it's not that this virus is selectively targeting children. I think what's happening is this is so highly transmissible. It's twice as transmissible as the previous lineage, earliest lineages that we had. So pretty much uh, anyone who's not uh, been vaccinated or previously infected and recovered is getting swept up in this along, along with kids. And particularly um, in areas where they haven't vaccinated uh, well, you know, people forget that you're not getting vaccinated uh, only to keep yourself out of the hospital, your loved ones, but also if enough people get vaccinated in the community, then it slows or halts transmission. So the kids who are not eligible to get vaccinated uh, are protected. And that's what's happening in the Northeast. But unfortunately, it's not happening down here in the South where the vaccination rates are just so abysmal. Peter, how sick do children get? Is that part of it? The unvaccinated would say it's one big so what? Is it a so what? 
Yeah, and so what you know the the misinformation to the disinformation out there is you know they quote death rates and they only point to older Americans or those with profound uh, underlying disabilities that that are those who get uh, not even disabilities but comorbid conditions who um, lose their life and the problem is we have a lot of young adults, adolescents and even kids who are one getting sick, very sick requiring hospitalization now we're starting to see uh, intensive care pediatric intensive care units for adolescents uh, and some of the younger kids start to fill up and and we don't know the full extent of long COVID this this more long-term condition where which includes neurologic uh, injury and we don't know how long-lasting that is so it's all hands on deck to try to keep the kids from getting infected should schools be fully reopened you know, look, I think it really depends on where the transmission is. And by the way, you know, whether I think it, whether I think they should be fully opened or not, doesn't really matter. That ship has sailed and pretty much in pretty much in person classes for a, a lot of the country. I think the key is trying to get the adults and adolescents fully vaccinated. But, you know, like if you look in Louisiana or Mississippi, 15, 16 percent of the adolescents are vaccinated who are eligible, maybe 30, 40 percent of the young adults. It's ridiculous. So that and you have a lot of some of the red state governors refusing any mask mandates and you have the Delta variant. And, you know, I say, well, you know, what could possibly go wrong? Right. I mean, so it's we're I think we're asking for trouble the way we're managing this. We've got to jack up vaccination rates in the south if we're going to do well in the school year. So let's talk about the mask mandates. I go home to the home state of California and it's L.A. County that is mandating masks indoors and outdoors for vaccinated, fully vaccinated individuals. Should that be a requirement? Yeah, I mean, certainly for indoors as Delta accelerates and and the reason certainly for unvaccinated individuals who are at high risk, but even the vaccinated ones and and it takes a little bit of time to explain, but we think what's happening based on some preliminary studies out of China and Guangdong province that this virus is multiplying at much higher rates in the nose and mouth a thousand times more. So you're shedding a lot more virus. So even if you're vaccinated and you get asymptomatic infection in the past with previous lineages, the vaccine was really good at not only stopping symptomatic illness, but even asymptomatic transmission. What's less clear now is with this Delta variant, certainly the first parameters holding that it keeps you from getting seriously ill or even uh, symptomatic illness at very high rates. So that's great. But uh, people who are vaccinated may still be shedding uh, a fair bit of uh, virus if they get a asymptomatic infection. And that's the reason for, for remasking, even if you're vaccinated. The CDC has not come out with that recommendation, uh, but that's where possibly things could head. Peter, six months ago, you had the courage to publish an article linking Soviet theory with American anti-science. You said anti-science kills. Elaborate on that now with six months more knowledge of this pandemic. Well, we just have to look at the numbers, Tom, right? I mean, there's the reason why 600,000 or more Americans have lost their lives from COVID-19 is partly due to the SARS-2 coronavirus. But in my opinion, an equal measure was due to defiance, defiance over masks and social distancing, not defiance over vaccines. And it's all a consequence of a massive, what I call disinformation empire, um, which, you know, we heard a little bit about it last week and this week from the White House around Facebook. But, you know, I point out that's that's 
it's you know this is so much more than facebook this is you know this uh, anti-science aggression coming out of us members of congress out of the some of the conservative cable news networks we're seeing it now it's been well reported now the russian government is trying to destabilize our democracy through what's called weaponized health communication using anti-science as a wedge issue and then we have the non-governmental uh, uh, organizations, you know, at least a dozen of them identified by the Center for Countering Digital Hate. It's amazing. We have to have an organization called the Center for Countering Digital Hate that has some 60 million followers. So this is a well-oiled machine or empire. And and I make the point is, look, you know, we make the U.S. government puts a lot of effort into putting in infrastructure to combat global terrorism, to combat nuclear proliferation, to combat um, uh, cyber attacks. But you know what? This anti-science thing is killing more Americans than all those others combined. Mm -hmm. And we need to recognize that. And so far, the Biden administration is just kind of skirting around the edges, you know, throwing a few well, darts at Facebook. This this won't do it. We'll continue this conversation. Dr. Hotez, thank you so much for briefing us this morning with the Baylor College National School of Tropical uh, Medicine, Peter Hotez. Let's head to Tokyo and start the conversation by talking about the Olympics, and then, Tom, we can move on from there, OK? John Vell, Nico Asset Management Chief Global Strategist, joins us right now. John, can you talk to me about the degree of excitement in the city you're in right now? Well, to be honest, uh, the mood is pretty grumpy here because of the lockdown and all the uh, trouble that's been affiliated with uh, the Olympics, the to and froing from various edicts that have been put out. But essentially, a, a good number of people are quite happy it's happening. And, of course, the athletes are very happy it's happening. And uh, thank goodness that Japan was able to uh, uh, have the Olympics here. I don't think anyone else really could have done it, to be honest, at this stage. Um, so it will be quite safe and secure. All the Olympics uh, activities are happening in a bubble here. And a lot of people will be happy when it's over, uh, to be honest here. And I then think the you might be one of them, John. To... I've got to say, Tom, that John Vell doesn't sound thrilled about what's about to take place in his city in Japan. Well, that is the mood here, to be honest. Uh, if you're watching on TV, it's fun. Um, but there is a, a, a sense of... Uh, of skepticism about the whole thing here has been uh, sort of a, a burden for Japan. Right. And uh, it's caused a lot of uh, uh, bad feelings. To a nation, John Vale, where symbolism is everything, is the emperor engaged with the Olympics? Is the prime minister engaged with the Olympics? Uh, yes, they are. They will be at the opening ceremonies, although a lot of people have dropped out, to be honest, like former Prime Minister Abe dropped out. And I think there's only about uh, close to 200 people from Japan who will be attending the opening ceremony. So it's very pared down. I think there's about 600 or 700 uh, foreigners who will be at it. So very pared down. That's amazing. John Farrell, I'm sorry, your entourage is 200 people. That's incredible. We couldn't go to the Olympics this year. I'm afraid, Tom, yeah. we couldn't make it. Do you want to talk about markets, John? Should we do that right now? Let's, Let's pivot hard away from something that's clearly upsetting nice you, Segui. sir. This is no good Segui, Tom. <laughs> Equity futures up 20 on the S&P. We're advancing a half of 1%. John, it just feels really difficult to push back against this market, even with the bond market doing what it's done this week. Equities were still doing OK. The drawdown was, what, two, three, four percentage points on the S&P. What is the bear case now through this year? 
Well, I guess you have to look at what Tom was saying earlier. There might be a surprise out of the Fed. It seems like there are some very uh, hawkish members who, who might dissent at the next meeting. Um, there's also the question about uh, who's going to be chairman going forward. And that's much more important than when the Fed uh, starts tapering. And of course, Powell has the job if he wants to, but uh, if he wants it, I think. But I think there's a chance that he might say, well, I've, I've done enough and uh, uh, retire before uh, things get any hairier. So that could cause some uncertainty, but it certainly doesn't seem like it's going to be earnings, does it? I mean, because I'm glad I'm not an analyst in the States. I mean, it's just embarrassing how, how, uh, how much these companies are overshooting analyst estimates, isn't it? John, the backdrop, of course, of all of this is a 10-year at a 129, and it was Nikolai Mai of PIMCO last hour saying half of it is some of the positioning and the technicals, but some of it really is fundamentals, a slowing down, concerns about the Delta. What do you think? Well, I think it is a combination of a lot of things. I think there's a lot of foreign buying, too, maybe especially from Japan. Uh, the data showed a lot of buying by Japanese banks, and I believe it was in June. And so uh, there's certainly a lot of uh, different factors going on, and people are really believe the Fed when they say that uh, the CPI is going to be coming down. There's a, a boatload of money out there that needs some place to, to be. And so they like to they like to be in treasuries, They're almost regardless of the, the price, it seems. Yeah. It's be certainly better than European yields and Japanese yields. John Vale, in the Western world, you're one of the great Japan watchers. When you hear the word Japanification, the Japanification of Europe, the Japanification of the United States. Is that a genuine concept for you? I go back and forth on that, to be honest, a, a little bit. Uh, Japanification, um, certainly in terms of the economy, is not happening to the U.S. economy. I mean, the Japanese economy has been quite dull for quite some time. The U.S. economy has bounced back strongly, and inflation is back strong. Uh, you know, Japan's been suffering from deflation or noflation, as I call it, for, for decades now. And that's not uh, happening in the States. So there's some aspects that uh, certainly can happen. Certainly the debt burden that's going up in, in, in the States is a form of Japanification. And uh, perhaps some of the, uh, the, the attitudes about um, how uh, society works is moving a little bit more in Japan's way, a little bit more of the polite uh, uh, version of society as opposed to the aggressive side. So there are aspects. Um, certainly Japan has led the way in terms of monetary policy and started QE, started negative rates, all these things. So uh, certainly Japan has some examples to uh, to uh, show the rest of the world, for better or for worse sometimes. And stuck down there, stuck down there for a long time. John, it's going to catch up. Mm. Good luck for the following month. Thank John Fell there, Nico Asa Management Chief, Global Strategist. Right now, a really important conversation and an appropriate conversation for summer. Long ago and far away, Carl Bruner and Alan Meltzer set up summer conferences. I will be direct. They invented the economic summer conferences. And the detritus of that has been the Shadow Open Market Committee, of which Mickey Levy has been a member for near 40 years. He of Bank of America, now at Berenberg Capital Markets, is their chief economist. We are thrilled that Dr. Levy could join us uh, this morning. Mickey, there has to be a fear, a singular fear, of the many shadows of our debt and our deficit, except life seems great. How is that? It, it, it's, it's really quite striking how um, 
the public, the financial media, and financial markets seem to be ignoring the dramatic increases in, in the debt and not really questioning what its consequences are. Particularly, Tom, it's not just the piling up of the debt, but, but it's also what are we deficit spending for? Are we allocating resources in a way that's adding to um, you know, productive capacity. And, um, you know, I think I, I, l l let's let's be get down to basics. Uh, one way or another, we and future generations are going to pay for it. Um, we used to think it was all going to generate higher inflation and, and higher interest rates. It hasn't. That doesn't mean it's good. Once again, it gets to the point, how are you allocating national resources? And, um, you know, it's, it's going to lead to, to slower right. growth in the long run. What would Carl Bruner and Alan Meltzer say about the two Americas we've, we've been dealt, not only off the financial crisis of 2008, of which you were in the crosshairs of, but also this natural disaster we have? What would Bruner and Meltzer say would be a prescription across all of economics to get us out of this mess? Okay, one thing they would say is coming out of the, the um, current situation, the pandemic, um, the economic situation is, is completely the opposite of, of coming out of the financial crisis. Um, it was the proper role of the government to provide income support uh, during the pandemic. But now you don't need any more fiscal stimulus. You've already rebounded back and you need to um, move back to normal, both in monetary policy and fiscal policy. On fiscal policy, they would completely agree with the notion that you need to allocate more resources to infrastructure that is that is really needed, but but not more to um, stimulating the economy, which is not needed. Mickey, you want us to focus on the debt pile. So let's do that right now. Why is it a mess to you? What is messy about it? Well, I, I wish our policy leaders were actually um, debating the issues in a rational way. All we hear about is the number, a trillion dollars for the infrastructure package. Also, the inf infrastructure package, please note, is called the American Jobs Act. It should be called the Infrastructure Act with an emphasis on infrastructure rather than creating uh, jobs. Um, there is little discussion at all about how the resources are going to be allocated, who's going to administer the projects, what projects are needed. That is, we should really be thinking strategically about how to upgrade and improve our infrastructure. Also, as you've noted, the infrastructure initiative, the American Jobs Act, is being tied politically to the American Families Plan Act, which involves a couple trillion dollars in various income support programs and holding that hostage to more fiscal stimulus is just not constructive. And so we need to disentangle the legislation and have our policymakers address what is really needed at this time. We do not need more fiscal stimulus to create stronger economic growth. We're our, that's, that's the old battle. So, Mickey, your issue then is not the additional dollar of debt. It's what that additional dollar debt of debt is being used for. Is that a fair characterization of your position? Oh, I, I, I think it's a combination. I mean, you know, whenever you have the government 
debt to GDP rising above 100, um, you, you should be concerned. You should be also be concerned when the Secretary of the Treasury says, oh, um, the Fed is keeping rates at zero, so now's the time to spend more. That's not wise strategic thinking. So I'm concerned about the rise in the debt per se, but I'm also very uh, concerned about um, how what we're deficit spending for and does that, quote unquote, pave the road for increasing productive capacity in the long run? Because it's the continued increase in growth in the future that allows us to uh, finance or debt, the, the debt service and also uh, raise standards of living. Why isn't all the spending leading to inflation? Well, it will. <laughs> I mean, the, the, risks, uh, the risks are inflation is going to go up. So let me put it in a nutshell. Inflation has already uh, risen significantly higher than the Fed has had earlier uh, predicted it would. Um, certainly, um, some portion of the rise in inflation is temporary as these uh, supply constraints and, and, and supply bottlenecks dissipate. However, you do see an excel you have seen an acceleration of aggregate demand okay now the critical issue is after this initial spurt in economic growth fall as the economy reopens following that if all of the monetary and fiscal stimulus in the pipeline which is unprecedented if it actually if those policies actually stimulate stronger aggregate demand as they are supposed to then you're going to end out with excess demand. And if those policies fail to work, right. um, then you're going to have the economy go back to where it was and, and most of the inflation will prove to be right. temporary. But, you know, the critical point is the risks are for inflation to rise and there's no question yeah. but that the higher inflation hurts lower income people the most. Yeah. And and what the Fed is doing is, is you know, it's really accentuating uh, income and wealth inequality, well, and it's really Mickey, not stimulating the economy. Because of time, I want to get you in trouble with uh, Berenberg in Germany. Tell me about the new Bundesbank from where you sit, and after watching Lagarde yesterday and the revolution of the ECB, is this a new Bundesbank? Compared to a, a decade ago, of course it is. Um, it's... it's uh, you know the, the the ECB. You know when it, when it was founded was you know was um, you know the Bundesbank was in in the driver's seat and um, it it held to its old uh, precept of stable money and stable uh, price levels and and now the ECB is um, it's in an awkward situation but it's all about um, you know financial stability and continuing to ease and continuing to have its eye out on the weak links in in the European Union. Um, that means continuing with its QE and, and negative rates. And so, yes, it, and of course, under, under um, Lagarde, um, they've expanded the scope of the objectives of the ECB to include, um, you know, climate change, um, some, some credit and distributional issues. So, so yes, it's, 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 it's a different policy-making uh, body than it, than it used to be. Mickey, it's good to catch up. Just the flavour of the heritage of Berenberg there with Mickey Levy and Holger Smeeding on the other side of the Atlantic. Mickey Levy there of Berenberg. 
This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.